Now it's time for our keynote speaker, Walter Russell Mead, who will give a keynote address on the topic of the world crisis and American grand strategy. Walter, Walter Russell Mead is the Revenel B. Curry III Distinguished Fellow in Strategy and Statesmanship at Hudson Institute, the Global View columnist at the Wall Street Journal, and the James Clark Chase Professor of Foreign Affairs and Humanities at Bard College in New York. He is also a member of the Aspen Institute Italy and board member of Espana. Before joining Hudson, Meade was a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations as the Henry A. Kissinger Senior Fellow for U.S. Foreign Policy. He has authored numerous books, including the widely recognized Special Providence, American Foreign Policy, and How It Changed the World. Meade's most recent book is entitled The Ark of a Covenant, The United States, Israel, and the Fate of the Jewish People. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Walter Russell Meade. Well, thank you, and thanks especially for the fanfare. I don't really get that in my classes. Um, though once I was actually uh, doing a public diplomacy tour in India for the State Department, and I went to Lucknow to uh, this wonderful girls' college for mu young Muslim women. There were something like 1,500 students in the student body, and as I got out of the State Department car walking to the lecture hall, the entire student body stood alongside the walk, scattering rose petals before me as I walked. You know, my first thought was, you know, if my students back home did this, they'd all get higher grades. <laughs> and then my second thought was this realization how quickly I've gotten used to this. So thanks for the fanfare. Um, uh, when I was asking Aldona what kind of a talk should I give tonight, she was, she was pretty directive. As, uh, I said, well, how, how long should it be? She said, oh, they like long talks, especially after dinner. And then I said, well, well how long are we talking? She looked at me and she said, Think Fidel Castro at the 50th anniversary of the Cuban Revolution. And then I said, well, you know, do they like amusing anecdotes? No, she said. They like long policy discussions. They'll be insulted if you try to be funny. Use the passive voice as often as you can Talk about abstract, the, you know, sort of abstract nouns. Um, use, use all kinds of complicated ideas and hy use hypothesis a lot. Um, and I kind of thought about it and I said, you, maybe you need another speaker. I don't think I could do that, Aldona, and I'm sorry. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do the best I can, okay? Uh, and you know, this is an odd time. It's a great time to be a foreign affairs columnist, let me tell you that, because you never suffer for something, for a subject. There's always, in fact, the problem is usually of the five major international crises or developments this week, which one am I going to adopt, you know, lavish my full 800 word allowance on? 
and so you sometimes feel the pace of events is really outpacing the ability of people like me, whose job it is to follow these events, to keep abreast. This is one of the most, certainly one of the most dramatic times, not only in the lifetimes of most of us here, but really in human history. Uh, I think if we, if we look back, we can say that sometime around 2014, the world went from a post-war era into a pre-war era. What do I mean by that? Well, in a post-war era, basically international politics is about cleaning up the loose ends from the last war. So in the 1990s, we were trying to figure out what to do with ex-Yugoslavia or the boundaries of some of the other former Soviet states or what should our policies be. But when you move into a pre-war era, you are, your international politics is about problems that, if they're not resolved properly, could lead to another round of great power war. And if you look at what we're seeing in Ukraine today, you look at what we're all thinking about in Taiwan today, you can see that this is the kind of situation that we're in. I'm hoping we're going to have a very long pre-war period. Hundreds of years would not be too short, uh, but we are in an era in which the possibility of great power war cannot be excluded. And for some of us old enough, and I look around the room, some of us are old enough to remember the Cold War, others are not. It's almost this feeling of nostalgia. Oh, the Kremlin is threatening to use nuclear weapons again. Uh, we're back into a world that for a while people thought, hoped had... Uh, had disappeared forever. So American strategy in this post, in this pre-war period, what is it? And in some ways, it's the strategy, Amer American strategy has been pretty simple historically, you know, and, and it's partly because we just stole it from the British. It's really a good thing that you don't have to pay intellectual property for foreign policy strategies because the, the British concept of, we'll keep a balance of power among all the big land powers so no one can threaten you at home, and you can build a global trading network that will make you rich enough in order to be able to afford your balance of power strategy. That's more or less a thumbnail description of American national strategy. And that's, we want a balance of power in Europe, and we want a balance of power in Asia, and we don't want to see Eurasia united under a single great power because we, we feel, and I think quite rightly, that that would be a mortal threat to us. When it comes to Asia, our objectives have hardly changed in 200 years. In the early 19th century, we actually tried, worked with some of the local Asian countries to prevent European colonization. We wanted to encourage, for example, Japan to begin to develop so that Britain couldn't do in Japan what it had done in India. And that was why Commodore Perry was actually in Yokohama Bay in the 1850s. He wasn't lost. He was there as part of an American strategy of balance of power in Asia. And we did not want to be excluded from trade with Asia because we saw even then that trade with Asia would be vital to our own economic prosperity 
in the future. When Britain was no longer the great power threat and the threat of the division of China among the European powers had begun to recede and Japan emerged as the threat, we then tried to create a balance of power in Asia against Japan. We did the same thing with the Soviet Union and shockingly we seem to be doing it again with China. There's a lot of continuity in that, in that policy. We didn't always do it well, we didn't always do it thoroughly, but you, if you go back and you look at what American politicians and, and, and leaders were saying, thinking, and writing, these ideas in, in the minds of people like Theodore Roosevelt were very much present. So in that sense, what we are facing today is a classic problem in American strategy, which is that the two, lar two large powers in Eurasia, China and Russia, uh, appear to be throwing their, their weight in with each other, and China in particular wants to emerge as the, a, he a hegemonic power in Asia. Um, and so we are doing what the British tried to do against Louis XIV in the wars of the Spanish succession in the 17th century, build a coalition of smaller powers to prevent this large power from dominating the region. So I suppose the next question is, can we succeed? Will we succeed? Is this really possible? I mean, after all, we're talking about China. I don't want to get actually, you know, China, predicting the future of China is one of those sports uh, that lots of people feel compelled to participate in, but which very few people emerge from that process with a lot of success. I, I, my own thinking is we've never seen anything in the history of the world like the emergence of contemporary China. A society this large that integrates both significant numbers of capitalist dynamics and market mechanisms while remaining under the control of a, of, a, of a totalitarian communist party, which is proud to be descended from the party of Chairman Mao Zedong, proud of the purges, of the murders, of the crimes, of the history of the Chinese Communist Party. It is a mix of dynamism, totalitarianism, and if you'll pardon the expression, evil, that is new. And at the same time, the Chinese economy that has risen in the last 30 or 40 years um, is difficult. It's difficult to see where the economy is going simply because no one has ever built a structure this large, this bizarre, uh, this dependent on, on political power, and the power that it's dependent on is a totalitarian state. So can a totalitarian state with the ability to mobilize all the resources of society, keep the Chinese housing bubble going indefinitely, or in some other way manage to slither it? We don't know. And so part of our strategic problems as Americans is we have to think about the course of a future power which may continue to rise on a dynamic arc after it's shaken off its current troubles, or these current troubles might be the sign that, Japan, that China, like other powers, is sort of reaching a sort of point of maximum power. We don't know.
We have opinions, but we don't know. Perhaps, though, the more dangerous or troubling question for many people in the United States about um, our strategy, the question is about America. And fundamentally, the question that you hear in this country and all over the world is, is America in decline? Does America still have it? When people abroad, they look at our record, you know, we elect George W. Bush, we have one kind of foreign policy, then we elect Barack Obama, we have something very different. We elect Donald Trump, we go off in a completely different direction. We elect Joe Biden, we do something different. What will we do under President DeSantis or President Warren or President Sanders, who knows, in 2024? What, where will we go? Has America lost the ability to manage its foreign policy, to set a course, to command the loyalty and respect of allies? Serious people around the world, many of whom are thinking hard about their own political future and the future of their countries, are asking this kind of question. And close in the U.S., many of us are asking questions you know, does, does a younger generation whose values, so many of whom seem to have values that are so different from the ones that we associate with the founding of the United States or the principles that have made America great in the past, you know, have, have these belief, have the beliefs that made America, America lost their hold on the American people? And if so, what new kind of society will emerge and after what kinds of trials and transformations? Those are the kinds of questions I think that people have in their minds. And again, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to disappoint you perhaps in that I'm not going to give you an answer. Um, I, I believe in the wisdom of the great sage Yogi Berra, who, who once remarked that prediction is always dangerous and especially when it involves the future. Uh, those, are, those are words to live by. The other thing, by the way, is in pundit school, they, they teach you a very important lesson early in your first year of pundit school, which is it's always good to give a date, and it's always good to give a number, but it's never good to give a date and a number. So I can't tell you what's going to happen. But I think what I'd like to do is maybe leave you with my own sense of why I don't think the American era is over yet. Why maybe, just maybe, there's still a little bit of juice in this country that we love. And I'll start with just the depressing observation that I am, and this to me is a very depressing observation, I am now 70 years old. And during my entire lifetime, the United States of America has been in uninterrupted decline. And what do I mean by that? We know as an innocent little kid trotting off to elementary school, right, the word was the Soviet Union had launched the Sputnik, and young Americans can't do math. And the Soviet Union is ahead of the United States in the space race, and we are doomed, and we're going to have to completely revolutionize the teaching of mathematics in America to have even a slender tope of survival. 
So I had to learn stuff like set theory and Mayan calendars in like the fourth grade in order to rescue America from this terminal decline. Um, all right, and then what, you know, we, we get over that and suddenly John F. Kennedy is running for president because it's over. There's a missile gap. We foolishly allowed the Soviet Union to get ahead of us in missiles and we're helpless and we gotta do something, we gotta do something. Well, he gets elected and well, maybe there was not exactly a missile gap, but anyway, we immediately seg into the Vietnam War. And here, America has lost its innocence. We've become completely divided. Our, our allies in Europe don't trust us. We've lost the first war in our history. We've become divided as a nation. On top of that, the civil rights movement. You know, Americans are screaming and fighting in the street. We have riots in major cities, assassinations of charismatic political leaders, the Kennedy brothers, Martin Luther King. You know, our society is so torn with violence. It's really over. It's over. We sort of catch our breath from that, and then comes Watergate and the Cooper Church revelations. The CIA has, can you believe this, been killing people in foreign countries. And, uh, I mean, <laughs> I'm still, all these years later, trying to process that, that shock. Um, and, you know, so we, we've, we, we've completely lost it. And then immediately following this, we have uh, the stagflation of the 70s and the oil shock. And I have to tell you, millennials and Zoomers, something that may depress you a little bit. Sometimes we boomers listen to you complaining about your future, and it just seems so cute we want to pinch your little cheeks. <laughs> Because when we were your age, we were the going to be the first generation in American history that would have a lower living standard than our parents. We were not going to be able to buy homes because the interest rates were like 13, 15, 18 percent mortgages. We would not have the American dream of a car because the gas prices were so. We were it. We were wrecked. We were hopeless. And just look at us now. So, um, you know, so, so more decline. And then if you, then again, some of you will remember this Japan eating our lunch. Japan was going to destroy us. America had completely lost. They know industrial planning. And we Americans, we just sit there like a bunch of hicks while the Japanese zoom past us to dominate all the key industries of the future. All right, you know, we get past that, and we have like Iraq war. Oh, Reagan starts a nuclear war with Russia. Oh, wait, he didn't, but you know what I mean. Um, and then we had, uh, you know, Iran-Contra. Again, faith in our institutions has been totally destroyed. You can remember this, all right? Miracle, okay, fine, we won the Cold War. There was like 10 minutes when it looked good. Um, but almost immediately we're back in and now we have China rising, Russia in, rampaging, in decline, folks, okay? So you're gonna have to forgive me if every time somebody tells me America is in decline, I don't get that excited, right? Because I've heard this before.
And if you want me to take your argument about decline seriously, and I'm open to it, you know, it is, you know, the future is the future. Uh, past performance doesn't guarantee future results. It could happen. All right. But you've got to show me why all of those other decline prophecies were wrong and how your own prophecy of decline has fully taken into account all of those past errors. And so you have a completely different standpoint for what you're doing. And what I generally find is that the people going around talking about decline have not done that, but it's the same kind of reaction. This does not mean, by the way, that I think everything is hunky-dory and we have nothing to worry about. I think part of the reason that decline doesn't end in fall so often is because we are a nation of worry warts. And when we hear that the Russians are beating us in outer space, we do rip up our math curriculums and go crazy and try to find an answer. So in some ways, our hypersensitivity to the prospect of national decline is part of the cultural set that keeps us going. Now, I'm afraid I'm beginning to trespass on Aldona's preference for a short speech. But if you'll, uh, if you'll indulge me, uh, all right. I think what, I, what I'd like to say is maybe, why is it, the question then comes up, why is it that everybody seems to think that American power is always in decline, even if it frequently turns out that it isn't? I mean, what's the cause of this, right? What was it George Orwell once said? The dark night of fascism is always falling on the United States, but landing in Europe. And uh, seems to be happening one more time. But anyway, uh, look, here's, here's what I think. In, in history, and the way we judge whether a country's power is stable or a country is stable, the thing we look for is stability. You know, once the pharaohs conquer, unite lower Egypt and upper Egypt, you know, the pharaohs just want Egypt to be Egypt and nothing to change from year to year, dynasty to dynasty. And so if some new power pops up or things are happening, sign of instability, sign of decay. Roman Empire the same way. You know, stability is the goal of power. And so we, we almost instinctively assess the, 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 the degree of power in a system by the degree of stability that it promotes. But here's the catch about American power. Our power is linked to and inextricably entangled with capitalism. And capitalism is the, the most revolutionary social engine that the mind of humanity has yet produced. And so, and so when the dominant power is a capitalist power, what you're going to constantly get is upheaval and change. You're going to get things like the Internet and social media that come storming out of nowhere and then drive everybody crazy, right? And you're going to have new industries popping up in places where nobody had industries before. Palo Alto, you know, California, as a global center of productivity, Nobody could have believed this a hundred years ago. But I met a gentleman here who said he was a, uh, 
a real estate developer in Silicon Valley. So, you know, things have changed. Uh, but the point, the point is this, in a, you know, in a world where the dominant power is hooked to capitalism, we're not just going to see social changes that test the cultural and political framework of every culture and country. We're going to see geopolitical change. The information revolution essentially allows global manufacturing because you can do the supply chains and all the complex things that you need to do to be able to make things in China that can turn up on the shelf of a Walmart or in a car factory in Mexico right when you need them. All right. And so out of that, the Chinese, not being stupid, saw an opportunity and grabbed it with both, both hands. And this change that Amer American capitalism is driving in the world created an open space for the rise of a new power. But I, let me just suggest, and, and this is a danger and I don't, I don't want to diminish it, but let me just suggest that the way to see whether America is truly in decline is whether the world stops changing whether new technologies stop appearing, whether social, social reality seems frozen everywhere in the world. If those things happen, it seems to me we need to start talking about a post-American era or a post-American space. But from what I can see right now, whatever the future may hold, Dynamic American capitalism, transformational capitalism, remains the strongest force in the world. And while the United States, our social fabric is being tested and our, idea, our ideological structures are being tested, our institutions are being tested, yes, but over 200 years, the core competence of the United States has actually been to manage ultimately technological change, to harness technological change to the development of American society. We, we ride this wave, we surf this wave. As far as I can tell, there's still waves out there. We've still got surfboards. I'm an optimist. Thank you very much.